Welcome to Marvel Moments, the show where we take a moment from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, just one scene from a movie or TV show to explore in depth before using it as a launching point for a discussion of a broader theme in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We also take time to look at a Stan Lee moment that resonates with that theme in some way before finishing with a mindful moment in the MCU. We're your hosts. I'm Matt. And I'm James. And our theme for today is Hope in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Today, we're looking at the scene in Endgame when Natasha visits Japan, and you can find it at 54 minutes and 20 seconds into the movie if you want to watch it for yourself, though we'll describe it for you so you don't need to. Just a quick spoiler warning for this, and the whole MCU to date really, as well as a note to say that you may notice a few slight technical difficulties at the beginning of our discussion, but just to reassure you, The sound quality does get better after a few minutes. Five years after the snap in Infinity War, the world is trying to move on. When a new hope to restore all that was lost is discovered, the Avengers are going to attempt a time heist to bring everyone lost in the snap back. But first, they have to get the crew back together. Clint has been missing since the beginning of the movie where we witnessed the heartbreaking loss of his family as they were about to enjoy a picnic at their ranch. We've received hints that he's developed a violent streak, but now Natasha has a location for him and she is on her way to Tokyo to find him. Let's take a Marvel moment. So what happens in this scene? We first see... Japanese gangsters been killed violently by a masked man in a shadowy costume. This is the Ronin. Their leader, Akihiko, has a confrontation with Ronin. He says, why are you doing this? We never did anything to you. And Ronin replies, you survived. Half of the planet didn't. They got Thanos. You get me. He says, you're done hurting people. The leader of these gangsters laughs. He looks at the scattered bodies of his henchmen, says, we hurt people? You're crazy. And then they fight. Ronin kills Akihiko and his posture visibly slumps. He removes his mask to reveal that it's Clint. We pull back to see that Natasha is standing there in the rain with an umbrella behind him. You shouldn't be here. Neither should you. I've got a job to do. Is that what you're calling us? Killing all these people isn't going to bring your family back. 
She says, we found something, a chance maybe. And now Clint is openly crying. He says, don't. Don't what? Don't give me hope. I'm sorry I couldn't give it to you sooner. She replies as she gently grasps his gloved hand. James, I think it's fair to say that when we meet Clint in this scene, he's really hit rock bottom. But I think it's also true to say that Natasha is perhaps the only one who could reach him in this moment. She says, I don't judge people by their worst mistakes to him later on. And he says, maybe you should. She reminds him of Budapest, of the way he reached out to her when she was still an assassin and says, you didn't. I think what I'm getting there is sometimes we need others to hold out hope for us, even if we're normally the person to do that for them. Yeah, for me, I guess Clint is uh, essentially quite an optimistic and hopeful character. As you've given the example, he took a chance on Natasha. Uh, He also took a chance on Wanda and Pietro in uh, Age of Ultron, and he invested a lot of time in them. He's also done other things as well. We see him teaching his daughter daughter archery, and that in itself is quite a hopeful act as well. Yeah, it's a really nice scene at the beginning of the movie before the heartbreak of losing his family. I think you're right, that is a hopeful act. I I think even though he uses archery to basically dispatch his enemies, he was a a black ops agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. before he was an Avenger. I'd like to believe that he does so in the belief that she won't need to use the bow and arrow for violence, but for her, it'll be something enjoyable, perhaps even a sport she can take up. I think, though, a lot has changed by the time we meet Clint in the new TV show, Hawkeye, which I'm loving, by the way. I'm loving this TV show, but Clint is such a gruff, guarded character with Kate and with others. But we also see this vulnerable, optimistic, hopeful side when he's with his kids at the theatre, at dinner, talking on the phone. It's really very sweet. And there's this thought that keeps coming back to me that parenting or nurturing others, nurturing children, nurturing vulnerable people is a hopeful act in itself. Uh, Parenting especially, because I think bringing life into this world, um, especially as things seem to get more difficult all the time, is a a defiant, hopeful act in the face of the ever-present possibility of cynicism and despair. Absolutely. And it, it feels like, to a certain degree, It's always been a little bit like that. Yeah, I think children and young people so often quite literally embody hope. They they represent a fresh start, an opportunity to break cycles of dysfunction and fear. Um, Nick, Kerry and I were discussing that in the episode on Assembled Family. So young people can be more optimistic and less jaded, offer us a a fresh perspective. Absolutely. It's almost like they haven't necessarily experienced these things that kind of, as perhaps adults who've experienced a little more of the world, have, um, kind of wear us down. See, Seeing those uh, ideas of um, 
the, this, these injustices in the world and the, and the unfairness that kind of cynicism and despair is almost a, a coping mechanism to guard ourselves against. If you haven't experienced those difficult times, you can be much more optimistic. Yeah, I, I'm thinking of the what if episode, what if zombies, the whole world has gone to hell in that episode. Almost everybody is either a zombie or has been eaten by the zombies. And yet Peter Parker is still a very optimistic, very sweet, hopeful character. And uh, do you remember the scene where, um, I think it's after Hope gets bitten and Peter's encouraging her not to give up, not to despair. And she says to him, how do you do it, kid? How do you just hold on to hope like that? Yeah, and it's great. In um, in that whole episode, um, in um, Peter is just so good at sort of everyone's coming at him with these negative thoughts and, and all the time he's just challenging them and, and putting this positive spin on things and that's just absolutely great to see. I mean, in uh, in the line of work that I do, we're quite often trying to teach people to challenge these negative thoughts and it's just a, such a great example that he just keeps keeps doing all the way through the episode despite the world falling down around him yeah so peter so you're a mental health nurse in your main work and perhaps peter could be a mental health worker a counselor a nurse in training maybe or at least a good example of one uh, of how to do these skills yeah um seeing one of my favorite occupations for peter in the comics he was actually a teacher and he took a lot of the lessons that he learnt from being a young superhero, from struggling in high school, from struggling um, to balance things out and all the difficulties in life and really use them to encourage other young people, to encourage the next generation. Uh, so, so it's great. And I think Peter, although in, there might be the temptation to think he's being naive in the What If episode, I, I don't think so. I think hope remains and and that's a through line for all the anthology episodes of w- the what if show the the watcher continually says something like hope never dies you know for peter for the zombie world it will never be the same again it'll never be the world they knew the people who they lost aren't coming back but they can adapt survive and perhaps even thrive And I just wonder if a similar mindset can help us in the face of the physical and emotional challenges posed by COVID, by Brexit, by political discord, by climate crisis, especially by the climate crisis. I I really think we are entering into this period, despite the best efforts of many campaigners and scientists, where it does look like we're going to tip past that point of no return. And it's going to be up to us to to adapt and to work towards the best. So you're a mental health nurse. I'm a youth worker. And one of the young people I work with is a real evolutionary buff. And it's really interesting talking to him because it gives him a really long view on the climate crisis. Um, and my impression of him is that this helps him give a more positive hope-filled perspective that emphasizes resilience. So how does his evolutionary view give him that, uh, 
give him that perspective? I suppose because we so often talk about saving the planet, but he takes the view that the planet is going to endure whatever. Certain species, true, will struggle and certain groups of people are going to struggle. But taking an evolutionary perspective emphasises adaptation and survival of the fittest, which sounds kind of harsh, but I think we can all work towards being as fit as possible because we are a social animal. We can work towards being fit as a society, fit as a culture. We don't have to let um, the most weak or vulnerable physically members of society perish or struggle i i feel like in there there's a challenge to just do the best we can with what we have so do the best we can with what we have because the planet will carry on without us even if the worst should happen is that am i hearing you right yeah um i think he'd probably qu- quote uh, the jurassic park novel where ian malcolm says the world's not ending uh, the worst that will happen is that the human species will end and i think there's there's a lot of room maneuver room to work in between where we are now and that um contingency we do seem to put a lot of hope on like the generation below us you know we were talking just a minute ago about um that children can be much more hopeful and optimistic there's also this expectation that's uh placed upon them that that yes they're going to come up and uh the, the next generation of scientists will will come up with these solutions to uh to the world's problems that we've got going on at the moment Yeah, and I think it can be unfair to pin too much hope on children, on young people, uh, to burden them with the expectation to solve our problems or even to be better, uh, to do better than we have done. And I'm just reminded of the scene in Spider-Man Homecoming where Peter Parker has really messed up. Uh, So for those of you who don't know this film... Uh, Peter is by himself as a neighbourhood Spider-Man. He's got a line manager, as it were, in Happy Hogan, but Happy's not really paying him much attention. Uh, Tony Stark's his mentor, but he just video calls in occasionally. And Peter's really been trying to raise red flags about an arms deal that's going on in his neighbourhood. And he doesn't feel like he's getting through to anybody. So he follows the arms dealers to their buying event their discreet handover on a ferry and it goes really pear-shaped and the ferry ends up breaking in half as a result of one of these weapons going off and Peter just manages to to save the day with a little assist from an Iron Man suit and because the Iron Man suit has shown up without Tony by remote control before he thinks it's just another instance of Tony just phoning it in not really being there for him. And he is so upset. He's so angry. He just lays into Tony and says, you know, if you really cared, you'd be here. And that's when the Iron Man suit opens and Tony steps out, revealing that, yes, he is there. And he's also really upset. What if somebody had died tonight? Different story, right? Because that's on you. And if you died, I feel like that's on me. And clearly the stakes are very high, a lot higher than most children and young people experience. But there's still that sense there that Tony's been so heavy on Peter 
Um, he says, I want you to be better than I am. Peter says, I just wanted to be like you. And Tony says, I wanted you to be better. I can empathize with how Tony's feeling, but I don't really condone his approach just because it's just so heavy handed. I think he's just repeating the harsh level of expectations that his own father, Howard, had with him. And we just see that cycle repeating itself. I just wanted to be like you. And I wanted you to be better. Okay, it's not working out. I'm gonna need the suit back. For how long? Forever. Yeah. Yeah, that's all. No, no, works. no, please, 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 Mr. Let's Stark, have it. You don't understand. Please, this is all I have. I'm nothing without this suit. If you're nothing without this suit, then you shouldn't have it. Okay? Gotta sound like my dad. Although I I'd perhaps argue his expectations aren't necessarily unfounded. There's a scene in the film after that where uh, Peter is on the plane with Happy Hogan making a new Spider-Man suit and there's just that look in Happy's eyes that actually this is what was what the spark that Tony could see in the previous film, I think. And I find that quite hopeful that he's fulfilling that potential. I think you're absolutely right. Um, I think Tony really does see in Peter as he did with um, the young man in Iron Man 3, Harley. I think he could see in both of them the same kind of creative spark, the same kind of potential that he had at that age. Yet I think that that spark needs nurturing, almost fanning into flame, if you want to extend the metaphor, rather than being heavy-handed, rather than suppressing it, rather than overburdening. And I'm reminded of um, the Black Panther movie. That that movie begins and ends in the same place. And it's not Wakanda. It's the playground, I think, in Oakland, California. I might be wrong. I'm not, not great on my um, American geography. But it's the playground outside the building where Eric Killmonger grew up. And there's a sense of hopelessness in that place, which ties directly into the social and cultural commentary in the movie. This city, this country, is not offering these young African-American boys who are playing on the playground opportunities to develop their full potential. And it's a very difficult thing. We see Eric as a child in Black Panther. He has grown old before his time. He sees his father dead on the floor, but he doesn't have any tears for him because people die in this neighbourhood all the time. Yet at the end, there's this spark of hope because T'Challa and Shuri show up to offer young people a route out of hopelessness and into hope, opportunities to develop their potential. I think that's really needed. And I think just going back to how Eric was as a child, and how we were saying how often young people are less jaded. It's really sad when young people like Eric do feel so jaded or they suffer with depression. Um, I know in my line of work, it's really difficult to see young people who haven't even finished school, haven't even had a college education, just feeling hopeless about the world. And it does certainly feel like there's more hopelessness around, perhaps. Yeah, I, I, 
I'm sure you probably will see this much more than me, but there is a sense of um, a growing and deepening mental health crisis, at least in the UK, particularly all the more uh, since lockdown began last year. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess it's about what we kind of do with that in light of what we're talking about here with hope, but also we talk about um, sometimes hope on its own isn't necessarily enough. And sometimes depression can feel like hope on its own isn't necessarily enough. And sometimes people can put hope in the wrong things as well. And that can cause things to people to get caught in quite destructive cycles, perhaps in relationships that they feel are going to restore themselves. Does that make sense? So either people who are single feel a relationship will solve all their problems or people in relationships where there are problems think that relationship can solve their problems if they could just mend these things. Obviously, I can't give too much specific information from my experience, but hopefully that's general enough. Yeah, I think that's helpful. And it reminds me of other situations where where uh, young people might look for hope from a different kind of relationship. So I know sometimes you see, I'm trying to say this without sounding judgmental, but sometimes you'll see young girls, young women who have placed a lot of hope in the relationship with a baby, having hoping a baby will can improve their life, bring some joy. And I think there's always going to be a certain level of joy. But as you're finding out now as a new dad, that it comes with a lot of responsibility and the rewards are probably well balanced out by sleepless nights and a, a lack of, of appreciation for, from a small person who's dependent on you. Absolutely. And I'm thinking of a Marvel example of the destructive capacity of hope. I'm thinking of Doctor Strange in the What If series when he loses the love of his life, Christine, in a car crash. He does everything to try and bring her back. Similarly with Wen Wu, the Mandarin in Shang-Chi. He thinks that it's possible to bring his wife back and I think on the one side, the Shang-Chi movie offers a different cultural perspective uh, on grief, on how just because a person is gone physically doesn't mean that they're altogether gone, which is quite a touching idea. But I think in, those, in that movie, in the TV show, when Doctor Strange is trying to bring Christine back, there's that tendency to lose track of what's really in front of you. Um, these are, very, again, very fantastic examples, but with very real-world parallels. When Wu ignores his children, they lose not just their mother, but in many ways the happy relationship they had with their father while she was alive. We talk a lot about being in the moment when we talk about things like anxiety. Um that's kind of like the idea of mindfulness. You're, you're, you're in the moment and it's almost like these are examples where people are so caught up either in the past or what's going to happen in the future that they're not, as you say, they're missing what's around them. And kind of the idea of mindfulness is it um, brings people back to 
grounding themselves in in sort of the present. And this reminds me of a message from one of our listeners. Um, it was a very, very short message. I asked a question in our Facebook group. Why doesn't Clint want Natasha to give him hope in Endgame? And Catherine responded, maybe Clint is a Buddhist. And she gave uh, a quote from a book on Buddhism that's far too long uh, to read out here now, but it's very much on that theme of not being able to be in the present and appreciating what's in front of us. So there is that idea. But I also think there's something else that's really eating at Clint. And so I wanted to read out a letter from Mary Megan um, on the same question. Mary Megan says, Hi, I loved the first episode on grief. I think hope can be a light at the end of the grief tunnel, so to speak. When we're dealing with grief and other overwhelming emotions, we need hope to get us through. We have to believe that things will be better or at least different. Otherwise, how can we keep going? Hope is my favourite thing in the world, but there is definitely a downside to it. I think that's what's happening with Clint in this scene. To me, Clint has given up hoping at this part of the movie. He has mourned and grieved his family so much that the hope he could reunite with them is painful. I don't think he could stand the pain of finally hoping to see them and then be let down. I think of hope as a form of prayer or even wishing. Hope is magical. It is the first step to creating the future. I think hope without action is the most difficult. Like Clint knew he couldn't do anything to bring his family back, so he lost himself in his pain and grief. When Natasha offered him an alternative, he didn't want hope because if it didn't work, he'd become even more lost and that would be unbearable. It's easier to hope when we have options, when we can take steps, because then it's not just hope alone at work. We found something. A chance, maybe. Go. Go what? Don't give me hope. I'm sorry I couldn't give it to you sooner. I think that really ties in with what you were saying before about how hope is not enough. And I think it also points to how hope by de definition is an uncertain thing. And the cost of getting our hopes up can be having them dashed when that hope is unfulfilled. And perhaps the greater the hope, the more costly the pain. Yeah, I hear that. And I guess just kind of building on that loss of hope, we actually use loss of hope as a symptom of depression. Both um, the manuals we use, the ICD-10 and DSM, talk about hopelessness and despair as, as I say, signs of depression. So I can't remember where I, I read it, but uh, one of the roles of us as um, people that are uh, working with people with depression, they talk about being hope for the hopeless. I don't know whether that's something that 
resonates with people? I think that certainly resonates with me. So for those of you who listen to the episode on grief, part of my work is with youth and children through the church here in Scotland. And I think that's very much part of our work as well, is just trying to find, help people to find hope in these uncertain and difficult times. And I think probably the challenge in both our lines of work is to help people to find realistic and measurable, attainable lines of hope. I think when people think of the church, they think of, so often think of a faith um, that is founded on a story that, while captivating, can be hard to prove. But that's not necessarily always the hope that's going to help people. It can be, what can be the hope that's going to get you out of bed this morning? Hope has to be founded in reality. It's not necessarily going to be the hope of something as heady as salvation, but it might be the hope of what's going to get you out of bed in the morning. Who are you going to see for a cup of tea? Who or how are you going to get the bills paid? That kind of thing. I, I That certainly breaking it down into to little things really really resonates with me that that um the the hope of that meeting someone for a cup of tea might be enough to get someone who's very low out of bed it's those as you say breaking things down those little hopes that can be so helpful yeah and i'm thinking about what if again because endgame isn't the only time when we see clint at his lowest in what if Ultron won, almost the whole world has died, but just Clint and Natasha are alive. Obviously, Clint has lost his family again. And Natasha is focused on the mission, as she always is, and getting him to put one foot in front of the other, taking him to the Kremlin, getting him to search through boxes. But there comes a point, as they're looking for the solution to the Ultron problem, that Clint just cannot go any further he just gives up and it is both a heart achingly sad scene but also very humorous because unbeknownst to natasha and clint we're not the only ones watching them the watcher is also there and he's getting more and more invested in the human drama come on look look the answer is right there. Huh? Yes. Uh, yes. This is pointless. Wait. What? Are you... <sighs> Don't sit down. Get up. Get up. Come on. You're human. You keep hope against the worst of odds. There's that question there for me. Is hope an essentially human experience? Is it something that we can always keep alive, even in the worst of situations? Just reflecting on that, I think everyone's experience will be different. We're all a product of our own experiences and upbringings, and that gives us different takes on what that means and different, I guess, capacities for things like hope. Yeah, and I think it can mean adjusting what hope means for us. I think, unlike in Endgame, the hope can't be that the family will come back. The hope in this situation 
becomes that they can defeat Ultron, that maybe the last few pockets of humanity somewhere on the planet have a chance to survive. And in the next episode, hope that the multiverse can survive. We're never beyond hope so long as we can find something worth hoping in. It may not be the thing we started with. We may have started life or our adult life or our schooling with an idea of what the future was going to be. And things don't pan out. Um, We discover our skills don't lie in that area or we try working in that area and discover it it wasn't what it seemed cracked up to be. Um, But then it becomes re-identifying things that are worth hoping in. Absolutely. So I have another message from our listener here. This is from Nick, who's a friend of the show and was our guest on Marvel Moments Assembled Family. And he said, with the exception of the Doctor Strange episode, I think all of the What If shows so far have ended on hopeful notes, especially the most recent one. The team up at the very end is not just hopeful, but exciting. I think he was referring to the Shuri and Pepper Potts team up. He was writing this about halfway through the series. And maybe this speaks to your point. I'm expecting a future episode to rescue that trapped Doctor Strange. So I'm still feeling hopeful even about that utterly doomed universe. I think maybe that's a byproduct of the genre. We're used to seeing seemingly hopeless situations, but seeing the hero ultimately prevail. I've never thought about it before, but it's a fundamentally hopeful genre of speculative fiction. It's quite interesting to listen to Nick's message after the series has finished. He's very much on the money with his expectation that Doctor Strange was going to show up again I and I hadn't even considered it until he he wrote this message to us and it made me think that because I saw that character of Doctor Strange being completely and utterly twisted you know he had dabbled in the dark magics he had destroyed his reality he had uh, leached the power and life force from other beings But maybe this is the point, even in his wretchedness and his desperate situation, even when his character has come completely undone, there's hope because in the end he realises the error of his ways. And what Nick wrote made me think that perhaps that glimmer of conscience is only available to him after he reabsorbed the good Doctor Strange variant from that episode, uh, the one who hadn't gone down the self-destructive path. I think that's quite interesting. Yeah, I um I like Nick's point about it being a fundamentally hopeful genre. Um that I think he's right. Uh we we are so expectant that there is the um, there's that storytelling trope isn't there of um you you have a hero you put a barrier in place and the story's about them overcoming the barrier. There's no kind of there's no point of absolute failure and no redemption at all there's there's as i say there's that trope of the all is lost moment and then the hero overcomes things and that is sort of our that seems to be the arc that we we like our stories in and it's it's especially i think true of this this genre and i think that can be very very good for us very helpful Uh, and i think in this and in infinity war endgame we're seeing that push to 
its breaking point in Infinity War, we see the heroes lose definitively. Half of all sentient life in the universe, perhaps more than that, is snapped out of existence because they're unable to come together to defeat Thanos. The first part of Endgame is them dealing with that, the consequences of that loss, that failure. And it just reminds me of that scene where Steve and Natasha are in the Quinjet getting ready to go and confront Thanos to try and get the Infinity Stones near the beginning. They don't know yet, but the Infinity Stones have been destroyed. That hope has been snuffed out. And Steve is looking at the little picture he keeps of Peggy in, I think it's his pocket watch. Um, He's such an old man. (laughs) Um, And looking very wistful about this person that he lost in the past and perhaps thinking about all that they've just lost. And Natasha sits down next to him and says, this is going to work, Steve. And Steve says, I know it is because I don't know what I'm going to do if it doesn't. And there are notes of desperation there that are realized because it doesn't work. So what are they going to do? And I think the rest of the movie is about them figuring that out. I hear that. For me, this scene has a real kind of, Steve's opinion is kind of, has a real feel the fear and do it anyway kind of vibe. He's he's very aware that things might go wrong. He's very aware that what's at stake and he's 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 feeling that and yet he still knows what he's got to do and he's got that belief that it's going to work because as I say, as he said, he he's not sure what he's going to do if it doesn't. And you know, we have the the benefit of hindsight in viewing this scene. But in that moment, the characters really have to believe that what they're going to do is going to work. And I think even as much as it doesn't, I think that's still a worthwhile thing to to take from it. I think so many times I've sat with a family member, the same family member, and they've said, this isn't going to work. It's not worth trying. And I've had to find a tactful way to put it to them. Or perhaps not so tactful. I'm not always the best at diplomacy. Just trying to put it across to them. How will you know if you don't try? And I think I do that because my dad has done that with me. Yeah, I just think you don't know what's going to work or not unless you try it. And even if it fails, at least you tried. And even if you fail, you know, the hope is that you'll have learned something from it. Yeah, it sounds cheesy, but there's that acronym, isn't there, of FAIL, and it's uh, First Attempt in Learning. Failing stands for First Attempt in Learning. Okay, no, I hadn't heard that one. I find that quite helpful, Is uh, so you can learn something, and then the next attempt may be a little more successful, and then a little bit more successful again. Yeah, absolutely, and that's part of the learning curve. Um, I'm put in mind of a quote, not from the movies or the TV shows, but from the Daredevil comics. Um, I'm a big fan of Daredevil, just in that he seems to be one of the most human and fallible heroes. He fails constantly. He really takes his lumps. And he learnt a lot from watching his father, 
who was a boxer, but not a very successful one. And the quote that stands out to me is one that Jack Murdoch, Daredevil, Matt Murdoch's father said, it's not how you hit the mat, it's how you get it up. And for me, in my life, I feel like I've been knocked down more times than I can count through illness, through depression, through feeling circumstances are against me as a result of total and utter failure and humiliation. But each time, I found a way to get back up. At times, I don't feel like I've really had a choice. But to be honest, that's that's a kind of survivor bias. I've always had a choice, a one way or another, even though it didn't feel like it at the time. I've always chosen hope. And I think that is probably the process that we see the heroes go through in Endgame. Things don't work out. Their best hopes are dashed against the cold, hard rocks of reality. But they discover there's always another way to look at things. There's always another way to attempt them. I think that's an important point you touch on there about always having a choice, even like from the sounds of it, from the examples that you give of your own experience. There's that you say there's there's always been a choice, even in these as we're seeing these examples from from our from the media that um, they've got a choice. There's always another way to look at things. And I think that is helpful and worth thinking on. And I don't mean to be triumphalist. Um, It's not an attitude I would have taken through a lot of my adult life. But looking back, the struggles genuinely have been worthwhile. And that's not to say there's no cost in, in the experiences that we have. It's um, again looking at the uh, at the examples from Hawkeye, um, the the TV series. He's still carrying those both physical and psychological bruises, I guess, from from the experiences that he's had. Uh, there's a great scene where he's lost his hearing, and they and Kate asks him, "How did you lose your hearing?" And he's like, "There's this this very quick montage of all these loud explosions and, and experiences that he's had, which are probably also quite traumatic as well." And he's like, well, "I don't really know." Yeah, <laughs> that that is a good scene, uh, and I think that's what we're getting in the Hawkeye TV show. It's very entertaining and very funny, but Clint is essentially a bruised and battered. A person at this point he's lost a lot of that optimism or at least he keeps it kind of well guarded um now and he resists kate's attempt to to treat him like a hero to treat him like a role model he doesn't see it he he sees the losses that he's had even though he got his family back the the fear of losing them again i think still there under underpinning everything that he does, underpinning his concern about getting home to fulfil his promise to Lila to be there for Christmas because he's discovered the depth that will take him to and he and he's, you know, has lost his best friend. He's lost Natasha and that doesn't seem like it's going to be undone. And yet Kate still sees him as an inspiration because in the moment she lost her first role model, the moment she lost her father, she gained another role model in Clint as he saved her life, as he showed her what can be done by an ordinary person. 
using their skills to the best of their ability. And it set her on a path, a path to be, to be becoming her own hero, really. Your whole thing is that you're low-key. It's a very hard brand to sell. Well, I'm not really trying to sell anything. All right, it should technically make you cooler, but I think with all the scary stuff that's happened since the Avengers appeared, people don't want that cynical, cool thing anymore. They want sincerity. All right. Not self-seriousness, but a heart-on-your-sleeve sincerity. I see. You are very contained. You keep your cards close to your vest, which you wear over a suit of armor and, like, 16 other layers of self-protection, all of which, under, finally, is your heart. So, not exactly on your sleeve. Again, not really trying to sell anything. But you do anyway. Yeah, okay, Kate. Um, what am I selling, then? Huh? It's certainly not Halloween costumes or toys off the shelf. Inspiration, Clint. And I feel like we're... So, by the time this episode airs, we will have had chance to watch all the Hawkeye show. So this consider this a prediction for free shows that we haven't watched, free episodes still to view. My prediction is that this the rest of this season is going to be about Clint rediscovering that he's an inspiration, rediscovering his sense of optimism and hope through the revitalizing relationship he has with this odd overconfident very enthusiastic young woman uh kate bishop yeah i hope so too and it just reminds me of a time um when i was a young youth worker i was only 18 this was before you and i had ever met um and an older youth worker took me to one side and gave me a bit of a pep talk similar to how kate gives clint a pep talk and his the lesson he wanted to impart was basically lose your cool. Um, don't, don't don't be too concerned about being cool, which I thought was really odd because I was a goofy, gangly teenager who was anything but cool. But looking back over 20 years with hindsight, I think what he meant was that I had to stop trying to be cool, stop trying to be aloof, someone to be looked up to. And he was encouraging me to be accessible, sincere because that's when you make real connections with people and they start to open up to you because, and be impacted by you because you're allowing yourself to be open and impacted by them. So it's, it's not about the image you project that makes you inspiring, but it's about who you actually are with them. Absolutely. And um, even in my line of work, we talk about building rapport with people to try and get them to share what's going on. And I'll be honest, if you go in as this sort of know-it-all professional who's only interested in ticking the boxes, you're going to get far less from people. A lot of problems we have in services is um, you end up telling your story over and over and over again. And if someone isn't listening to that, that's all coming across like they're not interested in that. That can be so unhelpful. So you have to be prepared to hear that person's story as if it's the first time it's been told. And I guess listen to them for what they want to say and not necessarily come with a particular agenda or a form that needs filling out. I think that's a good idea. I think that applies not just to our professional roles, but to personal roles. I think when I have a problem, the last person I want to talk to is somebody who is going to offer me a pat truism, a cliche, 
and tell me to to look on the bright side or to offer me some unconsidered encouragement what i'm really looking forward to somebody to listen to empathize to recognize what i'm really saying and to be honest if they can't think of anything encouraging to say because there's nothing i think more discouraging than a false encouragement that doesn't really hit the spot one of my teachers at university in my nursing always used to say make sure you make people feel like they've had a damn good listening to and that's something i hold quite true We've got a message here from Begonia, one of our listeners, and it's on four, and particularly his arc in Endgame. She says, I think fours might be the most hopeful arc of the original six Avengers, at least to me. I do not appreciate how he's treated in Endgame by the other characters slash the writers. The fat jokes are gross and tiring, but I love him and his arc. He goes through so, so much from his first movie all the way to Endgame. He doesn't always handle it well either. Who among us would? But he does get through it in the only way he can. The scene where he summons Mjolnir and realises that he's still worthy of it, even when he feels so so terrible about himself, means so much to me and it gets me every time. For me, the idea he can go through some of the worst things imaginable and not have it together at all, and can still find his way back to meaning, joy, and a new version of himself, that's a very hopeful thing. I love what his mother says to him just before that scene as well. Everyone fails at who they're supposed to be, Thor. The measure of a person, of a a hero, is how well they succeed at being who they are. I think those are really beautiful moments with Thor. And with his mother, Frigga. I, I agree with Begonia. The writers did not show for the respect he deserved in Endgame. I think leaning into his weight as a source of humour kind of got some cheap laughs. But they did get that scene with Frigga right. It was invested with so much pathos and heart. And I love this quote. There's such warmth and depth in its encouragement. It is encouraging as well because it talks about that. Um the expectation and Thor hasn't necessarily met his own expectation and just her kind words at the right moment to kind of say, well, actually he is still worthy. Like it, it really affirms him. And that's really something good to see. As, as you say, I think the writer's got that very right. Yeah. It is just really beautiful. And I think there's just something there for each of us Going back to what I was saying before, pretty early on, I I really my self perception, my self image came crashing down around me when I realised in my early twenties that I wasn't the person I thought I was. But through that experience and others, I kind of rebuilt that perception, not to be the same, but actually in a much more realistic and enduring way. Um, I realise that I have lots of flaws, but I'm okay with them, actually embrace them. And I hope that each of us can find a way to do that too. And was there something particularly affirming that you either stumbled upon or someone said that was helpful for you? There probably was, but I can't remember it uh, right now. It's been a long journey. Sorry, I'm putting you on the spot a bit. That's okay. I deserve to know what that feels like. (laughs) 
<laughs> the amount of times I put you on the spot in our recording sessions. Um, no, I I think I've just been very fortunate to be surrounded by people who have encouraged and been there for me and for people I've been able to encourage and be there for too and to have relationships like ours that lasted um one thing that we haven't mentioned up to this point is that James I was actually your youth worker at one point uh, and I actually left that role at that time when everything came tumbling down for me um but yet we've managed to stay in touch and can reconnect and work on this strange little experiment of a podcast together and all of this is very encouraging um so yeah thank you good stuff would you like to discuss a stanley moment sounds good oh before we do that begonia also added an extra note about her hope for the future of the mcu which i thought adds a nice note of levity i'd asked the facebook group who do you hope to see in the mcu and begonia said i really want to see squirrel girl hers were the first comics i bought and read before figuring out a way to read them that worked for me. And I've been meaning to get back to them for a while now. I recently heard that there was a show planned, but it got mixed, unfortunately. I'm hopeful she'll eventually get her time in the spotlight, though, as she has a very dedicated fan base. So yeah, I mean, I, I share that hope. I love Squirrel Girl. Uh, and there was a planned live action MCU show and she's going to be played by Melania Vaintrop from um, the very funny American AT&T commercials. And interestingly, she, Melania did voice Squirrel Girl on the animated series Marvel Rising, along with Chloe Bennett from the Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. reprising her role as Quake. So that was kind of cool. But if we're going to talk about this casting, I personally would like to see them branch out we're very much up for doing a diversity show on um, this episode um, of several looking at representation in the MCU. And there is an actor called Kimia Berpunier who has been on Cracked uh, YouTube videos, the Netflix show Atypical and Lucifer. And she is an Iranian American actor and she definitely doesn't conform to the typical superhero body type. But she has a real knack for playing sweetly naive, yet deceptively wise characters that really has Doreen Green, Squirrel Girl, written all over her. Absolutely. I, for one, hope that the MCU continues to become more diverse. I'm really enjoying hearing stories that don't necessarily fit my very narrow Western view of the world. Yeah, I certainly appreciated that about Shang-Chi and a little bit about the Eternals. Absolutely, yeah. So who do you hope to see in the MCU? Or what developments would you like to see happen? Are there any mistakes or deficits that you would like to see Marvel correct? Feel free to let us know. Also, what do you think about our show? Did you agree with our thoughts? Is there anything you think we missed? I mean, I'm sure there is. The MCU is huge at this point. What do the representations of hope in the MCU mean to you? So you can email us at makemineamarvelmoment at gmail.com or send us a message on Messenger via m.me forward slash ourmarvelmoment. You can also join in the conversation on Facebook and Twitter 
at our Marvel Moment or on Instagram at Marvel Moments Podcast. If you enjoy what you're hearing, please do hit like, subscribe and or follow and all buttons of that nature. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please do leave us five stars and a review. I believe it really makes all the difference. Let's discuss a Stanley moment. And once again, we're actually going outside the MCU to look at 2019's Into the Spider-Verse. Now, James, I believe you haven't actually watched this movie in its entirety. No, but I have seen the scene. Excellent. So let's just describe it a little bit for our listeners. In this scene, Miles Morales has his spider powers, but not a costume. So he goes to a costume shop run by Stan Lee. And he's a bit sceptical about whether the cheap $5 Spider-Man Halloween costume is going to fit him. Can I return it if it doesn't fit? It always fits. Eventually. And then it the camera pans over to, to a sign that says, no refunds, no returns, ever. <laughs> it all caps. And you get a little glint of gold on Stan's smile. And it just, I don't know about you, James, but it just cracks me up. <laughs> Absolutely. I do love all the scenes that Stan Lee is in. It always brings a moment of levity to, to things. It is, as you say, quite heartwarming. Yeah. I mean, I think when I was preparing for this show, if anybody could hear me listening to the scene from these movies, first I was bawling my eyes out at Clinton Natasha in the rain and then barking with laughter at this moment. These movies just really move me. And I think I think it says a lot about Stan and the other Marvel staff um, of the 60s and 70s and through to today. They really do kind of travel the whole range of human emotions in these stories. Absolutely. It's a beautiful moment. It's kind of... This, the theme in, into the Spider-Verse, it's heartwarming as uh, Miles Morales is trying to find his place in the superhero world, but it's also very funny. So moving from a humorous Stanley moment into our contemplative, mindful moments in the MCU. What we've been doing here is taking an ancient monastic practice called florilegia, and it's a big word, a $5 word, as Stanley would say, but it's really as simple as taking a quote that stands out to you writing it down in a notebook, and then reinterpreting it in the light of another quote. And so both James and I have come prepared with a quote today. James, would you mind reading yours first and telling us where it's from? So my quote's from the last bit of Age of Ultron, where the last Ultron bot and Vision are talking. And uh, Vision is speaking about... uh, his observations after only a day of spending time with humanity. And he says, there is grace in their failings. And I think you forget that. And I guess in talking about this hope and sort of the, the failure that we've touched upon as well, we, we spoke about it a, a bit earlier with that kind of failing is kind of like the first, uh, first attempt in learning and like improving each time and, 
just that that there can be, as I say, although we don't always get it right, there is something underneath that is like more than that. Does that make sense? I'm not sure I'm explaining myself very well. There's that um I the right motivations, even with the right motivations, we can fail, but there's grace in that failure. Yeah. I think it's only natural to struggle to express these things. Um, vision has a way of putting things succinctly that us mere mortals struggle to do. And I think grace is one of those big ideas that can take a lifetime to get our head around even just a little bit of it. But I, I do find that very inspiring, very encouraging. Um, I often think about the wastefulness of grace. You know, wasting things is not a good thing. And I think we're growing increasingly aware of how much it's costing the planet. But we need to find a way to take these things seriously and yet still allow for that waste, for that failure, and still allow for that capacity for learning and growing, as you're saying. Yeah, definitely. I think, James, when we're finished with this podcast, our next project's going to have to be writing the book of wisdom based on all visions quotes. Maybe. We do seem to talk about him a lot. Yeah, the wisdom of vision. So my quote, I'm going to take a leaf from Begonia's page here. Because that quote from the scene between Frigga and Thor in Endgame, where she says, everyone fails at who they're supposed to be for. The measure of a person, of a hero, is how well they succeed at being who they are. And I feel like I've already touched upon areas in my life, in my journey, in my story, where this has been really hugely relevant so I, I don't feel like I need to cover that ground again. It's just so warm and so encouraging. And I suppose maybe the next level encouragement for me is how to be that kind of encouragement to other people. How to find a way to be the friend, uh, the family member, the youth worker, children's worker, who brings that level of grace and acceptance into other people's lives. Hmm. Shall, shall we read our quotes together again? And uh, you first, then I, and see if they take on any new meaning. So there's grace in their failings. Everyone fails at who they're supposed to be for. The measure of a person, of a hero, is how well they succeed at being who they are. So those ideas seem quite linked to me, that that idea that there's something that can be gained from failing and that everybody does, everybody fails. That's a, a global experience. And it's more about what we do with that failure than necessarily the failure itself. Yeah, I think that's right. The, the two uses of the word fail and failing really stood out to me too. It could be reread as everyone fails and there's grace in their failings. And that's such an amazing thought. And I think that gives us room, space to break free from the expectations and hopes of the past and discover something new for the future. Um, something that might surprise us. I feel like that's all really I want to say on that. And me. 
Um, so in that case, I think all that remains to be said are our thanks to David Shaw, who created our epic theme, The Moment Has Come, to Ella Grace, who is amazingly diligent in creating uh, the transcripts for each episode, to AJ, the soundest guy, who is editing this episode, and to you, our listeners. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please do feel free to let us know. And from both of us, goodbye. Goodbye. And Happy New Year.